Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 155, Henry VI, The Wonder Years. Last week we introduced the small, squalling figure of Henry VI and three of the folk around him. Now, medieval England hated a minority. They liked a king, and they liked him to be in control. They didn't like a king who wasn't even in control of his bowels, especially when they were in the middle of a major struggle with France. Parliament's attitude through pretty much of the minority is interesting, though. They were a heartless lot. Sad as they were that Henry V had now croaked, as far as they were concerned, the war was over with the Treaty of Troyes, the new king and his council would have to cut their cloth according to their new collective suit. Parliament met more frequently and for longer. The wool subsidy was now granted for shorter periods and only for when Parliament was persuaded it was really needed. Tonnage and poundage, or customs dues, were reduced. Between 1422 and 27, Parliament refused to grant any taxation at all. It's interesting to me that as things get sticky over the water, Parliament doesn't get much of the blame for the problems that happened. But there's a reasonably wide element in Parliament that didn't give a tinker's curse about the King's French lands or his claim to be King of France. In fact, they were a bit suspicious we'd all have to start eating croissant again like we did under Billy the Conch, and wanted nothing to do with it. Let the King and his men do their thing, but don't make England pay for it. Let us call this the Old Bufty section. Though to digress, I looked up Bufty, a word I have used for many years, and according to the Oxford English Dictionary, it does not exist. I looked up the online urban dictionary thing, which was interesting and wrong. Someone said Bufty was military slang for civilian clothes, which is mufty, I think, not Bufty. 
Someone else said it was derogatory slang for gays called Dean, which I took to be a joke of some sort. So there we are, the perils of online information. And indeed, a question for you all, is Bufty a made-up word I've been using all these years? Anyway, we're going to call them the Old Bufties, and the Old Bufties were continuously careful to make sure that England was not milked to pay for foreign adventures. In addition, the lack of a grown-up king allowed them to extend their powers into the king's domain, not consciously necessarily, but the council often needed to invoke someone's authority to take some kind of action, and given that the king was sucking his thumb at the time, Parliament was it. But actually the remarkable thing about the years between 1422 and 24 in particular, and in fact really right up to 1435, is not about dispute and politics, although there was a bit of that. It's about the extraordinary level of collaboration and agreement. Yes, there were frictions, but no ambitious uncle like Alfred or Richard III stepped forward to elbow the young king's side. Meanwhile in France, the death of Henry had given the Dauphinists heart, and in 1423 they launched an offensive to the southeast of Paris, where Bedford's best commander, Thomas Montague, Earl of Salisbury, was besieging the famous market town of Provins, together with the force of Burgundians, a level of collaboration between the Allies that was actually surprisingly rare. You might remember Salisbury, the man whose calm thinking and talent made sure the defeat at Bourget did not turn into a bigger strategic disaster. So, the Dauphinists sent a force from their headquarters at the ancient city of Bourges to relieve Provins. It was an army probably in the region of 8,000 men strong, with a very large component of Scots, the same Scots who had made such a difference at Bourget, and the whole army was commanded by a Scot called John Stuart. Salisbury and the Burgundians went to meet them, and the two armies met each other at Cravon, a town held by the English on the river Yon. And for three hours the two of them looked at each other over the river. The concept of wading across a 50 metre wide river that came up to your waist in the face of the enemy was appealing to neither party. It had been exactly that kind of tomfoolery which had led to the death of Clarence at Bourget. But at some point the Scottish archers stepped forward and started peppering the English and Burgundians, which turned out to be mildly irritating. So in response, the English archers stepped forward and unleashed their longbows, and the result was slaughter in the Dauphinist army, and chaos and general mathering and blathering. Seeing the general mathering and blathering ahead of him, Salisbury did something distinctly unusual for the English. He ordered an attack. Oh Lord, here we go, Bourget all over again. But this time, despite having to wade through the river, despite their smaller numbers, the English hit an army disorganised by the effectiveness of their longbow again, an army whose French component needed very little encouragement to run away. Not so the Scots, who as the French legged it held their ground, buoyed by their traditional hatred of the English, but all to no avail. They in turn were overwhelmed. John Stuart himself was taken prisoner and suffered the loss of an eye as well as the loss of his pride. 1423 and 24 continued the tide of English success. Cavon put an end to French offensives in 1423 and the English were left to reduce key strong points in the lands they held. Bedford had ambitious plans for 1424. Now was the time to end consolidation and to branch out and get ambitious and strike south from Normandy into the ancient home of the Plantagenet, Maine and Anjou, 
and this war of expansion gave Bedford the chance to bind the Norman nobility closer to the English crown. Come and conquer with us, and you can take land and money and power. So, in fact, the wars of the 1420s cost England less than you might suppose, because the Normans were taxed heavily and their nobility were content to cough up, because they shared in the spoils. And so the Buffties back home were happy. But in 1424, the French and Scots were also back. And again, it was the Scots who revived the Dauphin's hopes as Buchan, the victor of Bourget and the Earl of Douglas, arrived back in France with 6,500 hairy Scots. This was the core of the Dauphin's new army. But he was also tremendously excited by a new toy, his Lombard cavalry. Lombardy being, for those of you who don't know, in the north of Italy. Equipped with the latest and most sophisticated Italian armour, they were going to give the English archers a terrible shock. And of course the Scots, as we know, were the antidote to the English. Plus, the French Count of Narbonne had joined them with Spanish troops, so a right old mixture. So, reinvigorated, the French and Scots looked for 1424 to be a red-letter year for the war, and they sat down to develop a plan. First off, Bedford was besieging the castle of Ivry at the western edge of Normandy, along with the Earl of Suffolk, and we had a Journée situation. Journée being the name for that common situation where it had been agreed that the commander would surrender his town if his lord and master could not rescue him within a certain time. So, they thought, let's go there. But before they could move, news came that Ivry had fallen. Curses. So a new plan was hatched. Attack, they say, is the best form of defence, so let's take the war to the English and attack the Norman frontier fortresses. Let's demonstrate to the Normans that the English cannot protect them. Hurrah! The French army was substantial. The largest estimates put it at 20,000. The smallest at 14,000, and a figure of 16 seems reasonable. So pretty big for the time. Set against that, the English had squeezed their garrisons and villages and come up with 8,500 and were jolly proud to have got such a large number. So yet again, outnumbered, but not outgunned. The French and Scots chose to attack the town of Verneuil on the eastern edge of Normandy in the Vexin, that ever-crucial region between Paris and Normandy we used to talk about so much. Now, as they came to the town near Douglas who was a canny guy, recognised that trying to capture a town is enough of a struggle to spoil a weekend. And so he hatched a cunning plan. One day, the guards on the walls of Verneuil spotted a group of sorry-looking and apparently English soldiers covered in blood and gore, in the keeping of a large body of French and Scottish soldiers. The prisoners told them a sad story, that the French and the Scots had met with Bedford in battle and given Bedford a beating that all was lost, that the castle must open its gates and surrender to the victors or be subjected to the horrors of a sack. Jelly-like, the town gates were opened and Verneuil was captured without a fight. Now, if I were Bedford, I would have had a few choice words to say to Mr Verneuil Jelly Defender Man, let me tell you. Douglas and Stuart were confident, ambitious. The Counts of Omal and Alençon appeared to have been much more cautious of abandoning the run-away-don't-fight-the-English-in-the-open approach. But Douglas wanted to see the whites of the English eyes. He wanted to rub English noses in Norman soil and devastate Normandy when he'd done it. 
And so the French army advanced to the southwest of Verneuil into English territory. They knew Bedford could not ignore this threat. Although actually, Bedford appeared to play it quite cool, nipping back to Rouen for a bit of a prey before the English army under Salisbury and himself advanced towards Verneuil to meet the French and Scots. Where, on the 17th of August, 1424, early afternoon, they emerged from the woods that lay outside the town into the plain. Ahead of them lay the French and Scots army, ready and willing. There had been all manner of squabbling in the French and Scottish ranks about precedence, which meant they saw ahead of them three battles. On the French right were all the Scots, both men-at-arms and archers. In the centre was the Count of Narbonne, and on the left, the French commander, the Count of Omal. The crucial thing were the wings. On the left was the heavily armoured Italian cavalry division, with their fancy Italian armour, shoes and shiny suits. The plan was that they would advance in front of the army at the start and smash a hole into the English line. On the right wing was a division of the French cavalry. Now their job was to swing round the back, cut down the baggage train and distract the English and then hopefully come back and flank the main army. All super cunning and super sneaky. For the rest of it, the French had learned from fighting the English. All the men-at-arms were on foot. No one was going to present an easy target to the English pig-dog archers. Bedford, meanwhile, for the most part, followed the English textbook. Archers on the wings of the battles and the flanks, sharpened stakes to protect themselves. Two battles, Bedford on the right facing Omal and Narbonne, Salisbury on the left facing the Scots. But Bedford had also heard about Agincourt. He'd had to listen to his brother warbling on about it and how he was so much cooler than him, that sort of brotherly thing. And so he'd made preparations about getting attacked in the rear and having his baggage searched. He made a lager of his baggage wagons. He had all the horses that had been taken to the rear, tethered nose to tail in a kind of wall. And then he had a mobile force of 500 archers to defend this citadel. Some say 2,000 archers, but the thought of sending a quarter of your army to the rear seriously doesn't seem credible. Next, some polite exchanges took place. Bedford asked the Scots what the order of the day should be, and the Scots said equally pleasantly that they would kill every man in his army if they had the chance, and any brave knight that asked for quarter would be butchered without Ruth. If that's okay with you, that is. By four o'clock, it was time to get it on. Bedford gave the order, Avant banners! And all around, in response, men sank to their knees, prayed to their god to watch over them. Quite a lot of ground-kissing went on, and then there was noise. Trumpets and clarions, shouts of St George and Bedford from the men, clanking of armour as the whole army lurched towards the French, archers carrying their six-foot stakes. Not to be outdone, the French and their allies responded, Montjoie! and came forward, eager, ragged. At 250 yards away, the plan was that the English would stop and the archers plant their stakes and draw their bows. On the left, the division under Salisbury did exactly that and started an artillery duel with the Scots, who also had archers with them. A chronicler called Warren was there. The English archers and the Scots, who were with the French, began to shoot at each other so cruelly that it was horrible to look at them. 
for they brought death with full force to those whom they attacked. But on the right wing, Bedford's wing, it all went pear-shaped. The Italian Fancy Boys Armoured Division appeared in front of the line, the sound of massed drumming hooves rang through the turf and caught the English archers with their hose around their ankles. Feverishly, they tried to plant their stakes or shoot down the charging cavalry, but it was too late. The Italians swept through the firestorm, swept through the stakes, and were upon them. As a chronicler wrote, The Italian cavalry, who, perfectly protected both man and horse, suffered nothing from the strikes of the arrows. Two things happened at this point. Many archers clumped together in smaller groups to defend themselves, and others legged it. One of the captains took 500 men off the battlefield in a panic, a crime for which he was later hanged, drawn and quartered. Now the shattering of the English archers was usually terminal for the English. The Italian heroes then turned their attention to Bedford's wing. The Italian cavalry charged the English infantry, furiously creating fear in their ranks and seriously threatening them. Numbers of men-at-arms struck by the shock bit the dust and the cavalry deeply penetrated the ranks of the English army, who opened their ranks to let the Italian cavalry pass. The French force was almost entirely men-at-arms apart from Scotch archers. Plus, they outnumbered the English two to one. So, man-at-arms to man-at-arms, they did a great deal more outnumbering than that. The Italian cavalry had broken the English ranks, normally terminal in medieval battles. And so what followed under Bedford was quite remarkable. Because as the Italians swept through them, the English line reformed. Behind them, the Italians kept going for the rear, no doubt intending to either swing back round or go and pick out some fashionable piece of menswear from the baggage train. But they met the baggage train castle and 500 archers in good order and all ready and waiting for them. This experience was going to be less fun. Much Less fun. Meanwhile, even though reformed, Bedford knew his division was exposed with the archers scattered. But nothing daunted, he advanced and engaged. On the other flank, the English and the Scots met, and out on the right, the French cavalry unit set off with their flanking movement. As superior numbers came into play, it began to get tough for the English. On the other side of the park, it was the same with Salisbury and his battle as the Scots thought of Bannockburn and the annual humiliation of the Calcutta match and furiously tried to slaughter the hated English ahead of them. The slaughter began on both sides and numbers would surely play their part. So, back to the Lombards. Suddenly, as I say, the whole thing was less fun. So far, they'd covered themselves with glory. And now, in the face of 500 English archers well-formed and prepared, they were going to be covered with poo. In the face of well-organised defence, the Lombards suffered the same fate as the horsemen had at Cressy, defeat and slaughter as horses went down in a welter of finely wrought horse armour and winkle pickers. But while this was going on, the French cavalry on the right arrived behind the baggage train. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, lager or no lager, with only pages and valets there, the archers otherwise engaged, the French ripped into the baggage train and started laying about them. Until, to their horror, a hornet's nest of arrows descended on them. The mobile reserve of archers had returned already. The Lombards had legged it, and pretty soon the French cavalry were fleeing as well. Archer once again reigned supreme. Respect. And on the right wing at the main battle, a miracle was happening. Outnumbered, still recovering from the shock of the Lombard charge, Bedford and his men were pushing the French back. Back to the chronicler, Warren. The Duke of Bedford did that day wonderful deeds of arms and killed many a man, for with an axe he held in both of his hands, he reached no one he did not fell, since he was great in body and large in limbs, wise and brave in arms. Clearly, Warren had something of a passion for Bedford and for double negatives, but biased or not, after 45 minutes of brutal hand-to-hand fighting, the French infantry ran for Verneuil, so hotly pursued that many failed to get inside and drowned in the moat. On the other side, Salisbury had a harder battle on his hands. The Scots, spurred by anger, porridge and national stereotypes, were pushing him back. And remember that the Scots alone had 6,500 men. And who knows what could have happened. But Bedford was live to the danger. So once again he reformed his men and the Scots found themselves attacked in the rear with more than a gentle goosing. And just to finish matters off, the mobile archer unit arrived on their flank as well. But still the Scots fought on. They had declared there was to be no quarter. There was no point in anything other than defiance now. As the English attacked, the English screamed, A Clarence! A Clarence! Reference to the dead English leader at Bourget, whose death was now being revenged. And so the Scots were slaughtered. Douglas and Buchan among them. Nobody knew it then, but it was the end of an era. Never again would the Scots fight as a large unit in France. Individuals and small companies maybe, but the time of the big Scottish armies was all over. Verneuil was a magnificent victory. It's one of those that enthusiasts weep over, lamenting that it doesn't have its rightful place in history, that it was even greater than Agincourt and so on and so forth. Well, I wouldn't go quite that far. Agincourt was the first. Agincourt was a shock. At Agincourt, the most glittering leaders of a nation lay dead or captured. Agincourt changed the direction of the war for 40 years. The Hall of Nobles at Verneuil was much smaller, and yet it should be remembered for many reasons. For confidence. This was the English at the top of their game. Eight and a half thousand men marching with complete confidence to meet twice that number. Confident enough to attack when they got there. For amazing discipline, reforming that line after the cavalry charge, Bedford returning to the battlefield after winning his struggle with Alonso and Omal, for courage and grit to beat a force of men-at-arms possibly three times their size. The most significant capture was of the 15-year-old Duke of Alençon. His father had been killed in Agincourt, and he was hauled off to prison 
forced to sell all he had to the English. But the gentle Duke, as a certain Mr. Ark would call him in the future, would have his revenge. In 1422, the Dauphinist and Armagnac had been reinvigorated by the death of Henry and the Fellowship of the Scots. That resurgence had been crushed at Cravant and Verneuil and put firmly back on the defensive. Verneuil confirmed English ownership of Normandy. In 1425, next year, Salisbury and Suffolk pushed south from Normandy into Maine and Anjou, taking Le Mans, La Flèche, Mayenne. The Loire Valley looked to be next. Amazingly, it looked possible for the English to actually win this. True enough, English success did have its price. The Duke of Brittany, worried by so much success, withdrew from the alliance. And between 1425 and 1427, the English spent more time raiding Brittany than having a go at the Dauphinists. But by 1428, it was clear that the English offensives would be resumed. The loss of the alliance with Brittany was a serious problem, but potentially far more serious, of course, would have been the loss of the Burgundian alliance. Henry had made it crystal clear that nothing could endanger that relationship. Bedford was equally clear that nothing was more important, and so he could have done without little brother Gloucester and his mad, mad schemes. To talk about Gloucester's mad schemes, I need to go back to 1401 and the Hague. When a baby girl was born to William, Count of Holland, Zealand, and Hainault, they called her Jacqueline, and she was their only child. And I am sure they loved her. Jacqueline was to find that being born into nobility may bring a lot of benefits and comforts, but it doesn't always bring a quiet life. But in fourteen fifteen, she was married to John, Dauphin of France, and when his brother died and Jean became heir to the throne of France, she seemed to be set for a life of luxury. Fourteen seventeen, however, was a bad year for Jackie. In April, her first husband died before she was sixteen. The poor rabbit. And then her father was bitten by a dog, and he died as well. She was now a young heiress. All around her, noble parents dribbled as they thought of marrying their spotty son to her. But as it happens, Jacqueline's inheritance was to prove a poisoned chalice for her. Because her uncle Johann launched a relentless claim to her inheritance, Jacqueline now needed an ally, and she duly married the Duke of Brabant in 1418, despite furious objections. Sadly, Jacqueline was going to be disappointed with the men in her life who proved more than a little inconstant. Brabant, in particular, was in chocolate teapot territory. Actually, worse, it just so happened that Brabant was on the other side in something called the Cod and Hook Wars in Holland. I'm seriously not going into, but the outcome was that Brabant failed to put up any resistance to the seizure of his wife's land, and actually mortgaged them for a few redies to carry on the cod and hook thing. Now Jacqueline was no pushover; she repudiated that marriage and fled to England. This was right up Gloucester Street. Damsel in distress, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, chance for a bit of chivalric adventuring to lay the ghost of his big brother. They got married in secret, and Gloucester prepared to fight for his wife's rights. Brother Bedford and the council were apoplectic, because it so happens that Brabant had got himself allied with Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, the fulcrum on which English fortunes in France balanced. Fighting for Jacqueline's rights was diplomatic and political suicide. 
Well, I hear you say there's nothing wrong with that. It's all rather touching and sweet. I'm all vincit omnia. In fact, I'm welling up a bit and may cry. To which I reply, come on, wise up. I say to you, what's love got to do, got to do with it. Gloucester was after a bit of totally selfish fun, puffed up with pride and a head full of grandiose notions. His army arrived in Calais and moved north in October 1424. By January 1425, Philip had counterattacked, and Gloucester realised this really wasn't the cakewalk he thought it would be. And before you could say, why am I lot all running away, Gloucester was back in old Blighty, putting his feet up by the fire and doing his level best to forget he had a wife at all, something which he seemed to manage with remarkable ease. A helpful Pope helped him make the forgetting of the marriage official with an annulment. Just to briefly finish off Jacqueline's story, she fought on a loan, but by 1427 had to accept defeat and at least managed to stitch up some kind of deal with Philip which saw her keep her rights for her lifetime. But she found it impossible to keep her fingers out of the till and went and married a chap called Frank, which was against the agreement. So Philip slung her out and slung Frank in prison. And only when Jacqueline agreed to give up all her rights did Frank once more see the light of day. Jacqueline retired with her paramour to a castle and took up pottery and hunting, as you do, before her early death in 1436. Gloucester had allowed himself to get distracted from the business of politics. The remarkable thing about the minority, as I say, is how well, by and large, the political class handled itself, remaining very even-handed in the handing out of patronage for many years, for example. To a significant degree, this is because the council had a good balance between the faction of Gloucester as protector and Beaufort as richest man in England and a political animal and Bedford, heir and regent of France. So when Gloucester met his wife-to-be and fell in love with her vast tracts of land, the balance was disrupted. When he came back, Gloucester found to his distress that for Uncle Beaufort the sun had been shining when the cloud of Gloucester had been removed, and Uncle Beaufort was, as a result, making hay. A raft of jobs had magically gone to Beaufort's supporters, Kelsoprees. Gloucester was hopping mad. As far as he was concerned, Big Bro had essentially nominated him as temporary king and all these jumped-up losers who claimed it was the Lord in Parliament and that the council ruled were just that, losers. He had as much problem with his jumped-up brother Bedford who seemed to have persuaded everyone that when he came over to Blighty on the Eurostar he automatically took precedence. We love him, but brothers can be annoying as well, can they not? In essence, Gloucester was looking for a fight. But we'll come to all of that next week. For the moment, it's time for the weekly word. We have had a lot of fun, have we not, over the word Ruth. Dear old Ruth, she has kept us amused, or at least it's kept me amused since one of the first lessons I learned at my grandfather's knee was the importance of laughing at your own jokes, because if you don't, who else is going to? Given the quality of my jokes and indeed my grandfather's jokes, this is good advice. Anyway, Ruth has kept us amused since, of course, we don't talk about having Ruth anymore. We only talk about Ruth less. Now, I've learnt that there is a name for all of this. It's called Unpaired Words. I am, unsurprisingly, hardly alone in trying to make people laugh through unpaired words. The common example is from old P.G. Woodhouse. He spoke with a certain what-is-it-in-his-voice, and I could see that, if not actually disgruntled, he was far from being gruntled. 
An unpaired word is a word where there should be an antonym or opposite, or some other form according to the grammatical rules, but where it in fact doesn't exist. So, for example, unkempt clearly suggests there should be a word kempt, and yet really there isn't such a word. Now, I always assumed gaily, happily, and as it turns out, slightly ignorantly. That this was because the positive form had simply fallen out of use, and I am not entirely wrong. There are many indeed that are just like that. So Ruth is in fact one of them. It used to be a perfectly widely used word, but for some reason fell out of use in the positive form. Unruly is another, a nice obvious one. Ruly used to be a word about being very organised and compliant, living according to the rules. You know, ruly. In fact, largely, I'm right. Demitable—that used to be a word up to the mid 19th century, basically meaning tameable. Nocent, my personal favourite, actually. Nocent rather than innocent, derives from the French and is first seen in England around 1400. And gainly, gainly is a word that came into use around 1300 from the verb gain, meaning the shortest, most direct route. And therefore, acquiring the sense of elegant, graceful, and ungainly is, of course, the opposite, coming into use around 1600. And by the early 19th century, it was on its own, unpaired, as gainly went out of use. And just one more, wieldy, used to mean easy to handle, falling out of use around the 17th century, leaving us only with unwieldy. But there are plenty of examples where actually this is not the case, where although it looks as though the word should have a pair, in fact it never has had. So you would think that dishevelled would have the word chevelled, but it never has, because actually it comes from the old French word déchevelé. Second one, you would think that inept would have an antonym ept at some point. But in fact, it does not, because inept comes from the Latin ineptus. And one more, inert is exactly the same. Again, you'd think there would be a word ert, and there isn't, or at least not connected to inert. Inert comes from the Latin word inners, meaning unskilled. In fact, there is a word ert, but it's completely separate. It's been obsolete since the 18th century, and unlike the Latin inners, it comes from the Old Norse word. So completely unconnected, a means to cheer on, encourage, or alternatively to irritate. So you can, if you like, revive the word "ert." Sometimes it would be perfectly reasonable grammatically for forms of words to exist, and yet they do not. For example, in English, you can usually form a noun from a verb in two ways. So let's take "recite" the verb, for example. This can be converted to a noun in two ways: "recital." Or recitation. So, for refuse, there should be refusal and refusation, and yet there is no refusation. Where is that word? This, ladies and gentlemen, I am pleased to say, has a name. The name is morphological gap. How cool is that? Morphological gap. While I'm on the subject, there is also a very irritating habit of forming verbs from nouns. I don't know if there's a word for this. A former boss of mine used to use action as a verb. David, would you action this, please? No, not until he learned to speak properly. What I actually said was, "Yes, madam, right away, madam. Three bags full, madam." But inside, I was being really brave and really cutting. 
in some cases, the story gets a bit more confused because we get dipsticks coming along trying to be funny, so words get kind of revived, such as in our example above of P.G. Woodhouse using gruntled. Or more like Max Beerbohm, for example, reintroducing the word couth, once a perfectly popular term, i.e. using the obsolete positive form in a desperate attempt to amuse and entertain. History podcasters do the same thing from time to time, and it usually doesn't end well. And then finally, you get something called back formation, where the word never originally existed at all, and yet it gets created. So, for example, the word abled never used to exist. Disabled was the word. Until the 1980s, when people wanted to use terms like differently abled. And now we have a new word. So, there you go. Unbeknownst to me, I've been following a long line of backformers and morphological types. I feel much better. So, enough is enough, ladies and gentlemen, or at least it is for one week. I have some kind donators to thank. Adam, Michael, Laura, Bob, Caroline, Nancy, thank you very much. You will, of course, be entered for the prize draw. Do remember, everyone, that you have one more week, yes, that's just one more week, to win a genuine medieval silver penny or bronze mount. So get your donations in by going to the website thehistoryofengland.com. So, thanks to all of you for listening and stuff. Good luck and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 